You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Susan Casey is the author of The Wave, Voices in the Ocean, and her new book is The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. Thank you for joining me, Susan. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, Susan, one of the things that really amazed me that about this book was your sense of storytelling. This is a really incredible work where you weave together stuff from the back in the ancient ages to the cutting edge of technology you weave together characters talk about orchestrating the characters and the writing in this book it's really intricate it's like a quilt i it's so funny that you say that because i actually thought of it as a as a kind of a tapestry of and i often felt like i was piecing together something with tweezers there are there are a lot of characters in this. There are several characters that come to the foreground, but there are also just a lot of characters that appear once that are really colorful. And I remember when I was writing the book proposal and I was describing how I saw the deep ocean, which was as this kind of crazy hub of human curiosity and unique animals and mystery. And to me, it seemed like a very colorful, very sort of, a place that was really a buzz and I really wanted to convey that in the book so that is kind of what resulted in me having to weave together lots of different stories lots of different places and I mean the deep ocean is huge all these different depths all these different sciences all these different animals all these different people so it did sometimes feel like I was you know a conductor of a very uh, highly textured orchestra of, of the deep you know, too, also, this book is, it's a transformative book to read. Uh, we hear the world, the word world building used all the time in reference to science fiction and fantasy, but you do that here. And, and my thought upon reading this book was that all of humanity up to the point of your book has been like a, a group of people living in a village at the top of Mount Everest and looking around saying, well, that's all there is. There's just ice and some plains. Why bother with anything else? And when you reveal the world beneath the ocean, it really transforms our vision of the planet and of our place in the planet. And that is an amazing accomplishment. And you do that early on in the book as you describe some of the geography of the sea, and then it continues on as you describe life. So talk about that. Was this a world-building experience for you? Yeah. Well, if you think of the Earth as a biosphere, so people know that ocean covers about 70% of the surface of the Earth, but I prefer to think of it as a three-dimensional habitat. So as a biosphere, everything that we know everywhere we live, our land terrestrial environment is 2% of that. And the ocean is 98% of that. And the deep ocean, the waters below 600 feet is 95% of that. So it's 
often said that it's an ocean planet, right? I mean, we, you know, we look at it from space, it's blue, but it's actually a deep ocean planet and the biosphere is black, it's in darkness. And it's really, really hard for us to wrap our heads around the immensity of 95% of the planet that we don't know and we haven't seen. And I, I tend to think of it as like, as if we li you live in this giant mansion and every room is filled with some incredible treasure and you've only looked in one or two of the rooms and you're completely content with that. So that would be the goal, would be to, hey, let's open all these different rooms and look inside them. You know, uh, this book begins with you uh, looking at a map and this map by Olus Magnus from long ago, 1700s, is it? 1539. 1539, my God, even earlier. It is something that's familiar to all of us, I think. We've all seen those kind of monsters. But it's a really interesting vision of, of the world at first where what we don't know, they, he just made stuff up or took some reports. But So talk about researching that map and looking at it. Well, so I wanted to get back to the beginning because I think as long as there have been people probably and way back beyond, uh, say, the classical Greeks and what we think of as Western culture, there were probably people gazing out over the ocean and wondering what was down there. But just to sort of, the, so much of that history we'll never know. I traced it back as far as the 16th, early 16th century and there was Olus Magnus, Catholic priest and historian in Sweden, kind of cosmopolitan guy, you know, traveling around, collecting fees for the church, going through Northern Europe and collecting stories about sea creatures that people had seen probably washed up on the beach. So if you can imagine a 16th century farmer somewhere in, you know, the Northern countries on the ocean in the North Sea or the North Atlantic coming along the beach and there's a sperm whale and they didn't know what that was. Here's this 50 foot long animal with huge teeth and probably looked pretty bad and it probably looked monstrous to them so that was what they had to go on plus everything else from like religion mythology the hydra leviathan the kraken all these sort of mythical monsters and what really what i loved about that map and it's in um Uppsala, sweden and it is really worth the trip uh to see it it just blows you out of your socks it's so detailed was that he really managed to convey in that one map the prevailing ideas about what was out there in the ocean. So everybody's heard the phrase and seen the, the maps with the monsters in the parts of the ocean that are you know, not known at that time. Here be dragons. You know, He actually put a face on them and gave them names and drew them in such loving detail. And they were clearly based on existing sea creatures, but made more fantastical and more frightening because that is what the ocean was like for them. It was just, I, I often call it aqua incognita. Like they just didn't know. Nobody knew how deep it was. Nobody knew where the edges of it were. It was just a sense of, it's, it's the great unknown and surely there must be monsters in there. It's a, a map of human emotions in a way. You know, uh, the, the next step in your journey is with Edward Forbes. And he was a really interesting man. He came up with the idea of the Azoic depths. What were those? And that was an amazing prevailing theory for a long time, even in the face of evidence to the contrary. So Azoic, without life, um, 
it lasted tenaciously. And I, I think he, it, it was, it was in the 18th century and 19th century that they were basically trying to figure out, actually going out there and trying to figure out what was down there. And Edward Forbes was sort of the, I don't know how to describe him. He was, uh, he was a real, uh, sort of leading scientist of his era and came up with this theory that we can't imagine that anything could live at this in darkness in these crushing pressures there's no food that we can dis discern there's no oxygen like who, nothing could live down there so that was his theory nothing lives down there everything that lives in the ocean is clustered near the surface and it's so, what's so interesting about it is it's still what we do today. It's anthropocentric, right? It's like we couldn't live down there. So therefore nothing must be able to live down there. But that theory really had legs because he was so influential. And even after, even when he put out that theory, there had already been like a couple dozen identifications of animals that have been dredged up from the seafloor um, beyond depths that he thought were azoic. Uh, and he just discounted those because it made sense to everybody that nothing could live down there. It took till 1875 to disprove that. And, and the man who, who disproved it, um, he was vastly influential, Charles Thompson, and he and William Carpenter took out the, the lightning, and, and they were a big landmark because they were some of the first gentleman adventurers too. And, and this is a, a theme, I think, in your book because we are once again in the age of gentleman adventurers. Yeah, I mean, back then it was, if you belonged to the Royal Society, if you had the money to fund an expedition or your family's friends had, a money, had the money to fund an expedition, you could go out and find discoveries with every voyage, right? Like this was the place to do it. And yet it wasn't easy. I mean, the ocean was uh, demanding and working at the depths that they wanted to see if there was life required actual physical labor. So they would have to take a dredge and a dredge is like a big net with sort of an iron jaw on it. And they would drop it to the seafloor and drag it for a while and then bring it up and see what was in the mud. And that is easier said than done because uh, it was, you know, on the lightning expedition, they were down as deep as 15,000 feet and nobody had gone that deep before. Um, but they did manage to bring up all kinds of animals and started to think, hmm, like it does seem as though there's the, the whole deep ocean is bursting with life. But amazingly, even after they did that expedition, there was still a sense of, well, we're not quite sure yet. You know, one of the things that proves to be most important in this history of science that you give us are the people who write about it. Somebody who writes well about it, and you are among the top of the top, um, really can make a difference. And I'm thinking of William Beebe, who just wrote, he explored and did some amazing things, but the fact that he wrote so well about him and so convincingly, he conveyed the spirituality of, of the depths, which I think is really important to understand. I, I couldn't agree more. And his book, Half Mile Down, it stands today. It doesn't seem dated. I mean, there are, there's the odd phrase here and there that you think, well, that was really of his era. But the way he writes about it is really from the soul. 
And so that is why I quoted from him often in the book because, I mean, you know, I give him a lot of credit because he was the first man to witness the deep ocean with his own eyes. And he had, you know, done the usual trawling and dredging and pulled up animals and just thought, I don't think this is really how they look because a lot of deep deep sea animals, when they are brought to the surface, they they just kind of look like deflated balloons or bits of jelly or, you know, you really can't understand them unless you see them. And he, he identified that because he was a naturalist uh, and, you know, and a very popular author um, and kind of a man about town uh, in his, in what I call the glamorous roaring twenties before the stock market crash. He was kind of a, a well-known person in Manhattan always surrounded by glamour, you know, was raising money to go out and get animals and turned his attention to the ocean and just thought, this is unacceptable, this trawling and dredging. We really have to see it for ourselves, but had no idea how to do it. And nobody did, which is the most amazing part because I always think when it comes to, I mean, we saw that this summer with the, the Titan, the implosion of the Titan submersible. I mean, there is inherent risk in going into an environment where you're dealing with tons of pressure per square inch. Who wants to go first? Okay. In 1930, we don't know. We kind of think we have an idea about what will work, but we're not sure you go first. And BB wanted to go first and did. You know, and his, uh, vessel, uh, the, the bathosphere, it was really, you know, an amazing thing. And one of the things that you too write about is the quality of light once you get to a certain depth. And I think that that's an important takeaway from this book. There's something very spiritual about our connection to this planet, to that light, to that place. And you convey it so well, and as did Baby. I kept going back to his writing about it because he was knocked out of his socks by it, and so was I. But he had written about it if you scuba dive, you know that it doesn't take very long before the spectrum starts to ebb beneath the water. So the red wavelength goes first, then orange, then yellow, then green, then then uh, then you're down to blue and violet. And once you just have the blue and violet, there's a vibratory quality to it that sort of seems hard to explain with words. I described it as more of an emotion than a color. And Beebe had all kinds of different ways of describing it. I think he said it excited his optic nerves in a most indefinable manner. And when you get into a sub and you start descending, everybody just goes gaga for this pure blue light. And so we lose sight of it around 300 or 400 feet. There's still a tiny bit of sunlight, but it turns black pretty quick. But if you go down to the bottom of the top layer of the deep ocean, which is called the twilight zone, and you turn on the really bright lights of a submersible, you see that there is blue down there. It's just that our eyes don't track it quite that deep. And so when you shine those lights, everything is just this vivid, almost vibrating blue. And there is absolutely nothing analogous to it on land. Like we never see the spectrum pulled apart in that way. And that blue is a super high frequency blue. It just kind of go, cuts right through you. 
one thing this book does so well is convey the complexity of the ocean as you go down and once you hit those depths and of the ocean floor itself. It is not, I mean, it's not just this flat, muddy plain. It's amazingly filled with these volcanic vents and these nodules. The nodules were discovered early, and you mentioned this in the book, and they're coming back with a vengeance, which you talk about later in the book. Not necessarily the best uh, thing that had to happen. So talk about just the, the terrain, which is amazing. It, it's like, you know, the Alps turned upside down and then next to the Alps right side up. Oh, yeah. I I mean, we've only mapped about 25% of the seafloor at high resolution, uh, which is makes all the difference. And if you look at Google Earth, you can see bathymetry, the topography of the seafloor. You can see where the large features are, but they're really, like, blurry in terms of resolution. So whenever they go over an environment with a sonar, and you do have to go right over it to create a high resolution, high resolution picture. They just find all kinds of stuff they didn't know about. So there's all kinds of small terrain things that we don't know about, but there are also some of the largest geological features on Earth lie miles beneath the waves. Uh, the Mid-Ocean Ridge, this 40-mile-long, basically, wound in the seafloor where the tectonic plates are pulling apart, it's the largest geological feature on Earth, and it's responsible for 75% of all of Earth's volcanism. So there's this sort of, it was one of the things that really enraptured me was there's this rock and roll going on down there that we're not aware of at all. There is also subduction where the tectonic plates meet together, press against each other, and one tectonic plate is driven downward, and that creates enormous earthquakes it creates deep deep trenches like the mariana trench so as much as we think that it might be it's not homogenous at all there's outbursts of uh, huge canyons all kinds of like giant faults so there are a million micro environments within this giant seafloor it's not one thing ever in any place one of my favorite characters in this book, and this is one of the things you do really well, is to create these characters. And one of my favorite is Terry Kirby. Uh, you meet him early on because you're both in Hawaii. So tell us about Terry Kirby and, and his submersibles. He's it's just, you know, you just bring these people totally to life. They feel like friends by the time you get done with them. Oh, well, that that is good because Terry is somebody you want to be a friend. And... Terry, I, you know, I've met a lot of aquatic people as I write about the ocean, but Terry is probably at the top of the list of the most aquatic people I've ever met. I mean, as I was running through his history, of, he's in his early 70s now, and his entire career has been devoted to doing things in the ocean. He started off in the Coast Guard, and he rescued a bunch of people and got a medal for that, and then he was a salvage diver off the uh, right off this coast, off Santa Cruz and San, San Francisco, which, as you know, those are intense waters. And he was a stuntman in The Abyss, the movie The Abyss, in the James Bond movies, and he was a shark wrangler. And that's just in the first, like, 10 years of his career. And then he ended up, his dream was submersibles. Like, a lot of people, he had grown up with Jacques Cousteau and was just really fascinated and wanted to explore the ocean the way Star Trek and 
you know, things like the, the sort of entertainment of space. There wasn't anything like that for the ocean, but he envisioned that. Like, what if you had the Starship Enterprise, but underwater? And so he was in Hawaii and happened to see this little submersible being craned out of the water and said to them, you know, he was a great ocean diver and had a lot of experience in the water, but had never been in a sub. And they said, what are you doing for the next few weeks? Like, we just lost two of our team. There was some accident launching the sub and two people died. And, and he was just like, I'm in. And it was before long, he was the pilot of it. And that began a career of about 40 years uh, diving submersibles in the Pacific, mostly for science and just exploring all kinds of amazing things that nobody else had ever seen. Like off the coast of the, of the Big Island, there's a submarine volcano uh, that will one day become the next Hawaiian island. And when it was ex having a huge eruption, he just dropped down there in his submersible to see what was going on. And he just has endless, endless stories about things he's done in the Pacific. And the Pacific is the ocean, you know. Now, one of the, the characters you make who's truly larger than life is Victor Vescovo. I mean, he's kind of like an inverse Bond villain. <laughs> In some ways, it's like I keep expecting him to take you to his volcano lair, which he hasn't yet, but we can hope. Um, so talk about Victor Vescovo, because he has done some amazing things, and I think the character arc you give him in the book is we meet him, and he's a, a, a rich fellow who's does who does a lot of diving, and but as you, you develop him, you give him a lot of depth. I mean, it's a fabulous example of writing about a person and bringing that person to life. Well, I think we're lucky that Victor is not a Bond villain because I would never want to be on the opposite side of the table from Victor in any walk of life at any time because he's really a formidable person intellectually uh, and emotionally and he's just unique. Even when you see him, I, I tried to describe him. He, we, on the ship, when I met him, people were saying, well, he looks like a Vulcan. And other people were like, well, I think he looks like a White Walker in Game of Thrones. And he's just a unique guy. He was very, he's driven by adventure. He does not want to waste a day of his life, but he doesn't just kind of pay lip service to that. He actually makes sure that he does that. He goes out and he does stuff. He had, at that point in time when I met him, skied to both poles and summited the uh, the tallest mountains in every continent and was looking around like, okay, what can I do next? And also made a fortune and also been in naval intelligence and also um, speaks seven languages and had, uh, you know, you name it, Victor had already done it, at, you know, within easily the first half of his life. He looked around and thought, why hasn't anybody been to the deepest spots in the ocean? Why Can I? So he looked into at first buying James Cameron's submersible, but that submersible was, I think it was the best technology of its age, which was 2012 when, Vic, when uh, James Cameron went to the Challenger Deep, but it never dived again. It dived once. And it really wasn't, like things get obsolete fast when you're talking about these machines that want to go to the Challenger Deep. It's almost 36,000 feet deep. And so Victor, because he's very smart and also does his homework, found the best submersible manufacturer in the world, this company Triton Submarines, and commissioned them to design and investigate building a full ocean depth submersible that is fully certified, which means that it's been peer reviewed, essentially. So it's safe to dive in this repeatedly. 
to the, the, the Hadal zone, which is the deepest part of the ocean. After Hades. After, named after Hades, the god of the underworld, uh, the most mysterious part of the ocean. And the, the, how it, the Hadal zone is created is when tectonic plates meet and create a deep trench when they're pushing against each other and one plate is being driven beneath another. So it's a pretty in, extreme part of the ocean. And he just wanted to go down there and see it. Um, it took about five years to build this submersible. And I got really lucky because that the debut coincided with near the beginning of my reporting period for this book. So when I heard about it, I immediately reached out because I knew that this was going to be an opportunity to see the great, great depths, uh, the ones that nobody had ever seen. And they, Victor just immediately said, come on with us. And so a certain amount of writing nonfiction is just tenacity and legwork and being willing to roll up your sleeves. And a, another part of it is luck. And so I think I really got lucky hooking up with Victor at the beginning of his exploration of the oceans, which lasted four years. Um, and he blew every record out of the water in terms of just he, he dived to dozens of places that nobody had ever been, took all the top Hadal scientists along with him and footed the bill for that. Um, and these are people that I really have a lot of time for because science in general, it's not easy, particularly in the ocean. But that studying the Hadal zone means you're never going to see the realm that you're studying and you're going out to sea for months at a time. You're away from your family. And Victor took them all on board and gave them an opportunity to have access to this realm in a way that they had never had before and also took them down in his submersible. Um, so they got to witness it for the first time. And I think that was maybe one of my favorite things about that submersible, which was called the limiting factor. Uh, was that the scientists themselves got to visit the realm that they studied for the first time in history. And in a sense, they became a family to one another. All of them got to know one another. So, And I think that that's true of all of the ocean scientists because, strangely, we spend how what a hundred times to up to get up into space, what we do, and we still don't even hardly understand what's happening out at the ocean, I walk past the Monterey Bay every single day and look out at the horizon and think, my God, there's so much out there that we just can't see. There are trenches, there are mountains, there are canyons, there's all sorts of weird critters. You talk about all of that in your book. So tell us, I mean, this book, I'm guessing, has changed you in a really significant manner. I do think that because I got to dive, I didn't know in the beginning, okay, how am I going to do it? I had faith that maybe I would be able to get down there. And by down there, I mean below 600 feet. But I didn't think I was going to get to go as deep as I did. And it did change me because I, I write about this a lot. To go, the journey inward is a different journey than to rocket into space. And the first thing you notice when you get beneath the surface is the most significant difference about it is that it is completely alive. And you see that there's just this density of life in the water. It's, it's a matrix of life and it's so beautiful. It's bioluminescent. It's like very creative in terms of its expression. I mean, there are these tiny fish with giant teeth and there are jellyfish that you've never seen before and couldn't even imagine in your 
wildest imagination. And so, uh, you, first of all, you're meeting this new part of the Earth, but since it is such a significant part of the Earth, you know, 95% of it, I felt as though I was meeting the planet that I lived on for the first time. Um, and in order to do that, you really have to be willing to accept the fact that she sets the rules. We don't. You can't go down into the deep ocean and think we're really in charge of the earth. We go there because we understand how to engineer against 6,000 pounds of pressure per square inch or 16,000 at the very bottom, and we obey those rules. So when we blast off into space, I think we perceive it as a kind of a conquering. But when you go inward into the deep ocean, it's a submission. It's a surrender. It's like, okay, we understand the rules. We're going to go down there. Because, of course, the goal is not to just to go down there. It's also to come back. And it takes a certain amount of humility, and it brings up a certain amount of humility. And to me, that humility is the most wonderful part of it because I feel like we that's what we're missing above the ocean. And there's real power in it this notion that we are not the ones in charge. 95% of the planet is deep ocean, and she's in charge. The new book by Susan Casey is The Underworld, Journey to the Depths of the Ocean. Thank you for joining me, Susan. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.